0: hey welcome to bjj mental models episode 150 i'm steve kwan bjj mental models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jujitsu approach and today back again with this very special occasion episode 150 a very special returning champion from the isle of vancouver mr robert (laughs) Bernacki. how you doing buddy
1: I'm doing pretty good, actually. I got to, I got to travel for the first time in a while, so I'm I'm a lot happier than I was before.
0: Do you want to talk about that? Is that your first trip since the pandemic started? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I did manage to
1: come over to the mainland a couple of times, but yeah, like actual trip of any sort. Yeah, that was the first one. I don't know. I don't know if we'd plan to do a separate episode about Nogi Worlds or if we're going to cover it in this one, but that's up to you.
0: Um, well, let's see how it goes. I mean, I know that you had a topic that you wanted to talk about, but of course I am happy to be guided on whatever journey you feel is appropriate for our dear listeners here. But I know that the thing that you wanted to talk about today sounds like Mr. Rob, you've uh, you got your head into some chaos theory, huh? Uh,
1: well, let me preface that by saying that please take everything I state about chaos theory with a huge grain of salt. Uh, I am <laughs> And by no means qualified to discuss the you know the ins and outs of the minutiae of it, but there are some ideas from it that I got from a book by a guy named James Glick. I believe it's spelled G l e i c k and the book is just called Chaos. And I read this book, gosh, probably close to ten years ago now, and I found it to be really helpful in understanding the dynamics of certain situations in jujitsu. And I use it a lot when I try to explain certain things in class and, and I use it a little bit on my online academy, bjjconcepts.net or .com. Like how I got the plug in right away. That was, I'm, I'm gaining a b- bit of a professionalism here in my interviews. I know no one listens to me. Yeah. You're
0: figuring it out. No one listens to me till the end because I talk too much. <laughs> so I just got it right out of the way. That's actually a good idea. It's funny you bring that up. I just did a recording with Preet Mikkelsen and I had to give him the plug sandwich and explain, you know, if you want to plug your shit, don't wait till the end you can do it at the end but do it at the beginning too because i guarantee you no one wants to listen to anyone talk about jujitsu for an hour plus so even the hardcores might not hear it get it out of the way at the beginning so yes bjjconcepts.net heavy inspiration for bjj mental models and probably one of the the best resources out there if you're interested in seeing actual applications of the conceptual stuff that we talk about here on the show so go do it Try it. No commitment. No bullshit. It's not a cult. Give it a try. Bggconcepts.net. <laughs> there you go. Not, not yet. Anyway, it's not a cult.
1: <laughs> so yeah. So this this chaos stuff, like I said, it's a very deep field of you know mathematics and all that kind of stuff. And uh, you know we don't really need to get into that, not beyond the limited scope of my understanding. But with the way that it relates to jujitsu is pretty much in making a distinction between linear and nonlinear systems. So like mm-hmm. if anybody's heard of chaos theory in like popular culture, it'll either be because of a an Ashton Kutcher movie or because they've heard <laughs> of something called the butterfly effect. <laughs> where, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings somewhere in the world and it creates a, a crazy weather pattern somewhere else in the world. And that's just a, you know, obviously a really Simplified way of explaining something that's extraordinarily complex, but it, it explains the idea of initial conditions. Right. And that's what I use it for in teaching jujitsu, which is that there are scenarios in jujitsu where the initial conditions can cause an immense amount of variable result at the end. Whereas there are situations in jujitsu where the initial conditions are not going to lead to a extremely variable result. And I find it really helpful for students to understand that and know when,
0: you know, one is the case and the other is the case. Awesome. Yeah. The only thing I know about chaos theory is that Jeff Goldblum talks about it briefly in Jurassic Park. So I'm going to lean on you here to do the majority of the explanation. So, of course, there there is the possibility that you could totally just snow me and this whole episode could be bullshit and I'd never be the <laughs> wiser. But I will if you haven't done that to me yet, as far as I know, in the three years we've been doing this, so I'm going to just go on good faith here. It's funny. One of the guys in our community discord is actually a physicist. And I told him Bernacchi wants to talk about chaos theory. And the guy who said something to the effect of. We don't call it that anymore. It is now known as nonlinear systems or something like that. I don't
1: remember. Well, So that, that's exactly what I, so I mentioned like the idea is that it's, you know, nonlinear systems versus linear systems. So that that's really the only part of it that I'm
0: leaning on. Yeah, I believe they're called deterministic nonlinear systems. But can we agree that chaos theory sounds like a hundred times cooler and that is maybe a
1: way cooler. And if we're going to try to explain it to the kind of, let's face it, dumb people who do jujitsu. Yeah. It's got to sound cool. Not all of them, but certainly the ones that seem to post a lot on social media in the last little while. Not the brightest,
0: folks so let's just call it chaos theory and, and we might get through to more of those yeah look i'm, I'm not here to teach people jujitsu i'm here to get clicks so chaos theory it is we're fucking going with chaos theory let's okay. do it so maybe help me understand this a bit i mean you brought up the butterfly effect and that's probably the most common anecdote you hear when it comes to people understanding chaos theory the idea that somewhere else in the world a butterfly flaps its wings and just by like knocking over a series of random dominoes it creates a ripple effect. Of causality, and somewhere else in the world, like ten years later, there's a massive hurricane, and it all happened because that butterfly flapped its wings. That's like the idiot layman pop culture yeah. explanation of this. But with that said, that is literally the extent of my knowledge of what this stuff is. so I'll, I'll pass the buck back to you.
1: Okay, so let me let me try to again with my limited understanding of this. So I, I, I'm doing my best here, folks. The guy who the physicist who's going to listen to this, I'm sure, is going to correct me. But at least as far as it relates to this, uh, let me try to break down the difference between a linear system and a nonlinear system in like the simplest way possible. And I'll use an example from another author that I recommend, which is Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Most people would know. Famous author, black swan guy. Black swan, fooled by randomness, that kind of stuff. And it, how he explains it is that there are occupations where the earning potential is on a linear scale. So like if you're a I think he uses the example of a dentist. The best dentist, the richest dentist on the planet, at least, you know, as far as people who are making their money with dentistry. I'm sure there are very rich dentists who make crazy money doing other things, investing or whatever. But as far as like your income from being a dentist, the best dentist on the planet is not going to make a million times more than the worst dentist on the planet. You know, maybe a good dentist makes $200,000 a year, a great dentist makes $500,000 a year, and a ridiculously good dentist makes a million dollars a year. Does that kind of track, right? Like it's linear. Yeah. It goes from you know, one to maybe five to maybe you know, 100,000. So the iterations are you know, mathematically linear. If It's five, then 10, then 20, then 40, then 80, that sort of thing. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's a linear that's an example of a linear system. An occupation that has non-linearity would be something like acting. You know, you could be an actor whose real job is to be a waiter and you maybe make ten, twenty thousand dollars a year appearing in commercials or or plays at your local like theater house sort of thing, and you barely make any sort of money acting. Whereas You know, the number one actor on the planet, if he signs a a back-end deal with a studio and has a, a, you know, a a superhero movie that hits big, they're going to make $50 million on one movie. So there's no linearity. It's not, you know, 50, 100, 200 kind of thing. It's like 50 or 50 million. Yeah. Where based on the initial conditions of I show up to Hollywood, I go on a few auditions, the end result can either be I'm just a lifetime working actor who never makes more than let's let's say maybe even if I just I get a regular gig as a guest star on TV shows, maybe I make five hundred thousand dollars a year as an actor, and that would be great. That's a great living. But then the 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 top end of the scale is so absurd, and there's so much, you know, randomness in these elements, like apparently, but really underneath the surface, there are deterministic systems that we don't fully understand
0: yeah i i get it it makes sense and i mean i think in a lot of ways jujitsu i can see where you're going with this it kind of falls under that category of a of a non-linear system right well the- so
1: it, it doesn't it doesn't depending on where you are within a role and this is why i find it so helpful is because if i just tell you hey jujitsu is non-linear and based on initial conditions anything could happen that's not actionable right like if i just tell you that you're like Cool. So it's, you know, based on the initial conditions of a match, let's say, you know, we slap hands, we bump fist, that's it. That's the initial condition. And then beyond that, it's like, you're going to try to get a grip and I'm going to try to get And This is going to happen and that's going to happen. And maybe I tap you, or maybe it's a boring match that ends up in 50, 50, and that's all chaotic. That doesn't really help you do anything in jujitsu. Understanding the distinction between linear and non-linear systems as they play out in jujitsu is can be quite helpful in how we structure our training and structure our
0: behavior during a role or a match. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I get it. I mean, it's, I guess that what you're getting at is when we're talking about chaos, there's a few ways that that can be interpreted. One way is, look, there are some variables that are especially important to nail. And then the other way to look at it would be, it's all chaos, it's nihilistic, there's nothing we can do, so why even try? And that's not the message you're trying to send here. You're trying to give people variables they can control at the beginning that might have an outsized impact on their net result. Is that kind of where you're going?
1: An, an outsized impact on the net result at the beginning, but also as the match progresses, there are areas where, you know, chaos or non-linearity is so reduced that the idea of chaos is no longer helpful. Right. Let me give it two examples that will hopefully make the point a little bit more clear. So an example of a of a nonlinear or chaotic system in jujitsu would be either let's say the beginning of the match or you know where we're both in a standing position and there's takedowns possible or the beginning of a a match or a role where there's a, a guard player and a guard passer in either one of those situations just off of the initial conditions where again just like a small difference in the initial conditions could lead to a massive difference at the end within the grip fight. So there's a lot more attention being paid to grip fighting and Kuzushi, partially because of the work of other people, partially because of uh, some work that I did with Stefan earlier this year, putting out some material on it, where people are starting to understand that if you don't win the grip fight at the beginning – the rest of what happens, you're going to have a lot less influence on it. And the end result can be so dramatic where if you don't know that you need to grip fight and address the grips as they happen initially, we could have a scenario where we grip fight and I win the grip fight and then you recognize it and you break the grip and we just go again. Or we could have a scenario where we grip fight, I win the grip fight, You don't recognize how dangerous that is and I immediately throw you into a submission and end the match. That's a big swing in potential outcome versus a scenario where I've mounted you and you're going to try to get out. There isn't a massive swing, like there aren't so many things, especially for me as the person mounting you, there aren't so many variables You're either going to frame me or you're not. You're either going to bridge or you're not. In every case, it's like an A, B option that I can easily deal with. So I can plot my responses to what you do very, very simply. I can basically rehearse. I can have set answers for what you're going to do. If, you know, with the initial conditions of a match... I can't have a set answer for every single thing that a guard player is going to do. I can't have set answers for every single thing that a guard passer is going to do. Those are immensely chaotic things, and we need to have more of an adaptable approach to that. We can't just say, I'm going to learn this system where if he does A, I do B, if he does C, I do D, because you're going to get lost in the, like, the lack of processing power that you have to make a decision in the moment. So what we can do is take that inherently chaotic thing and try to reduce it to
0: winning the hand fight. And if we don't, we've got to break distance. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. It kind of ties into something that Matt and I have talked about here. Matt will always bring up the the idea of knowing the predictable responses of what your opponent is going to do. And the more you can restrict the number of responses that your opponent could possibly do, the more you can anticipate what they're going to do and take away their options and make their fight more predictable. And you brought up a great example. When we slap hands, bump fists, and we're both on our feet, anything could happen i mean the the number of things that could happen that could go sideways and be unpredictable it it is very very hard to have the kind of snap reflexes to respond exactly to whatever your opponent is going to do because there's so many options and you can't really know which of these hundreds or, or thousands of possibilities could occur whereas like you said if i'm mounted on you I have restricted a lot of the options that now could be done within your game plan and there's only a few common things that you're likely to do and it makes it makes the outcome of the fight more predictable and as I I get older I mean when I started jiu-jitsu I originally thought you know the goal of jiu-jitsu is to get a submission but my thinking has changed and for a while I thought well actually the goal is to secure a position and now where my thinking is and I've heard you say something similar is the goal of jujitsu is to increase the probability of your success as high as possible. I mean, I don't really care necessarily if I get a submission or if I get a particular position. What I want is to get to a state where I know that the odds of my success are like 99% and I want to ride out that situation. I want to take away any opportunity for my opponent to have some degree of, of advantage over me or an opening that they could exploit and really that's all that positional advancement is in jiu-jitsu is you're progressively removing your opponent's options and increasing the probability of, of you winning and you're right that at the beginning of the fight it's inherently riskier because Anything could happen. I mean the guy could shoot on you, he could stall on his feet, he could pull a guard, he could do a flying armbar. You have no idea what's that was gonna be the example that I used. It's it's the flying arm bar is sort <laughs> yes. of the perfect example of it. Is you go
1: out there, you're like, okay, let's do some takedowns. Yeah, and you, you grip up and the guy just hits you with a flying armbar. And when we go from that amount of uncertainty and potential result. To okay, now I've got him down, now I'm past his guard, now you know he's either gonna get an underhook or he's mm-hmm. gonna try to frame me and regard. There is so much less can go wrong. Yes. And so that doesn't mean that the only thing we're trying to do is reduce the, the chaos because sometimes you can't. What we want to do is understand where these variables, these initial variables or these initial conditions can lead to massive differences in outcome at the end. But also it's about learning how to train for the different levels of variables. So like the more linear a system is, the more you can have a system. So like, you know, a back attack system or a mount system, it's harder to have a guard passing system overall, although you can have a, like, you know, a system, a knee cut system and a leg drain, like that kind of thing. As basically, as you drill down to fewer potential variables, You can be more systematic in your approach as you expand outwards into greater variables. You have to be less systematic and more dependent on heuristics and on you know developing a a set of a sense of feel and a set of instinctive reactions. And you know when we talked in the past, I can't remember if it was with you or with Stefan, we were talking about the idea of gamification and, and and utilizing these. I believe the term is constraints-based learning, where you're we're playing games that have certain restrictions on them so that you have to develop certain responses that you might not otherwise develop. That's how you deal with the more chaotic stuff. And then more just like repping and getting used to predictable responses in the more linear systems. That's how you can do that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. The way that I often think of this, because you brought up a great point with the guard, which is that the guard is like a nexus of chaos there's so many things that can happen there there's dozens of variants of guard that could be played you can't always easily control which guard you're going to wind up in you don't know what your opponent is going to play from there and it's reasonable to assume that as long as jiu-jitsu is a going concern there will be new guards that are invented so chaos and the guard kind of go hand in hand because the reason the guard is so powerful is because there's so many options for the guy on the bottom if you're the guy on the top trying to pass and so many options for the guy on top in how he decides to pass you know
1: we've got movement-based passing pressure-based passing you've got submission-based passing then you can combine the three moving in and out of them once you go changing from a one two option to a one two three option creates a a huge jump in uh, the amount of again like potential combinations that you can use so yeah
0: like both passing and the guard can be quite chaotic yeah, I've heard people like uh like Brawley Oestima talk about waypoints when they're guard passing, which is that because there's so many things that they can that can happen from the guard, they come up with a position they like that they're comfortable in and they train that position. Like an example would be a, you know, a split squad or headquarters, headquarters or something. Yeah. yeah, and their objective is regardless of what my opponent is trying to do from guard on the bottom, my objective is always to get to that waypoint because that's the position I've trained and I've trained what i believe to be all of the variables that could happen and all of the options that my opponent could have so if your opponent th- snares you in like delaheiva or something maybe rather than trying to pass directly from Delaheiva Hiva and ha- trying to have an answer for everything your focus first is to get to that waypoint get back to that position that you're comfortable in and then try to pass i've also heard that referred to as pit stops which i think is a, gr- a great idea like getting to a position where you feel like you've trained this enough that you know all of the options rather than just trying to have an answer for every possible thing that could happen trying to change your mindset so that it's get back to the place where i'm comfortable and then play the game from there
1: yeah, Ryan Hall uses the term base passing position. So I, I try to d- draw a distinction for my students between, you know, are is this a guard or is this a passing position? You know, like headquarters, it resembles De La to the untrained eye. But it's not, you know, in, in one case, the guard player has an advantage. In one case, the guard passer has an advantage. And you, you need to know which one is which, otherwise, you're, you're going to be moving, uh, you know, inappropriately. But in the process of trying to find your way to these positions, there will always be an inherent amount of chaos. And so it's not enough to just train the idea of I'm going to get to headquarters because there will be moments where you're not in headquarters and you're trying to get there where that those variables start to exist. And if somebody is good enough at grip fighting and off balancing, and they're doing a good job of keeping you out of, your base passing position or vice versa. Somebody's doing a really good job of keeping you out of your preferred guards. We're going to have to have a set of reactions that we can do that we've developed where we've developed, you know, like whether it's the skill of guard retention or it's the skill of sweep resistance or sweep defense or sweep recovery, where while you're trying to get to your, your headquarters, you get off balance. Your opponent attempts to sweep you in a way that's maybe novel and not just one that you've experienced before. And you still are able to come up with good solutions on the fly. And so again, we're understanding the distinction between the linear and the nonlinear systems and how to train both of them in different ways results in the
0: most uh, complete and skillful grapplers. Well, let me ask a question because you mentioned that this is something that you're starting to use to inform your instruction walk me through that i I feel like now i kind of understand the idea of what you're explaining and hopefully the listeners do too but i guess the follow-up question then is how does this manifest in terms of the way that you teach and maybe the way that you you help your competitors build strategy because it sounds like this is kind of a an informing step that you use in the process of of getting people to the point where they go off into competition is giving them that confidence that they can reduce those probabilities i'd love to know how you actually work this into your curriculum
1: yeah. So it's it's not something that I'm starting to use. It's something that I've used for a while. I, you're familiar with the, the, you know, the fuck your jujitsu kind of drilling system that we use, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe actually you could help me explain it because something I've been trying to get my head around and I'm still not sure is I know that you guys have this fuck your jujitsu system, which I believe is inspired by Ryan Hall's work, but I'd love to know. What's well, it inspired by a speech that Ryan gave when
1: I was training there. Basically he said, you know, you know, if I come forward and towards your guard and you sweep me, Ten times or a hundred times. On the next time, I'm still going to approach your guard like I don't give a fuck about your jujitsu. And he was just communicating the idea that an appropriate training mentality is to have the attitude towards your opponent that it doesn't matter how good they are. You're just still going to give them your best shot. And so I, I took that that speech and that phrase and turned it into a proprietary drilling and situational sparring methodology that helps people who would otherwise be too stymied by their own, I guess, what we would commonly understand as ego protection systems, which is like, you can say that you're going to approach someone's guard with the same verve on the hundredth attempt as you did on the first one. But realistically, for most people, that's not going to be the case. Most people are going to try to minimize the the level of loss in a role. So if they know someone's really good, they're going to avoid their best game. And that is a really great strategy for competition. It's a terrible strategy for development. You know, I I would say that the majority of people training jujitsu still view the majority of their roles as, at least in some way, competitive. And so they try to reduce the chances that they will lose the role, which is terrible for development. So what Fuck Your Jiu-Jitsu does is it takes the win-loss aspect of rolling completely out of the equation. And it creates a set of rules or restrictions for different like subcategories of Jiu-Jitsu, for different skill sets that we're trying to develop. And we make a game out of it where the restriction is on one person, on one participant, to emulate the attitude of I don't give a fuck about your jujitsu. I am so confident in what I'm doing and how I'm trying to develop that I will limit myself from, you know, certain things so that, and you will be able to do whatever you want. And I will still try to figure out an answer. So a- example of that would be uh, fuck your jujitsu sweeping. In the case of fuck your jujitsu sweeping, the rules are that the the top player cannot flee and they cannot attempt to pass. And they have to let their opponent establish a guard of their preference, and then try to sweep them. So basically, I'm just on top. I allow you to make your grip. I'll let you get to your guard, and then you try to sweep me. And uh, you know, to be specific, a sweep means that I put you down and I got on top. Because a lot of times people knock the other person down, and they're like, "Good enough, that's a sweep." It is not a sweep. You obviously have to get on top with control. And so the person on top is practicing. Being resistant to sweeps and then being able to recover from being knocked down and then also preventing sweep completion. And then the person on the bottom gets to try out all kinds of sweep tactics without having to worry that they're going to get their guard passed, without having to worry that the other person's just going to run away and not engage. So we, we've created a, a round now and we will switch top for bottom halfway through. And so now we've created a round where the amount of sweep attempts is going to be, again, just exponentially higher than it would be in a normal round. Because if I'm if I'm not so great at sweeping and you're a little bit better than I am, I try for a sweep, you pass my guard, the rest of the round I eat shit. Or I'm great at sweeping and I insta-sweep you and then I fuck you up for the rest of the round from top. So in, in, in either of those scenarios, there's one attempt and either a success or a failure and no more development of the skill sets that we just discussed is possible. Whereas in fuck your jiu-jitsu, it's like entirely, entirety of the round is spent on developing those skills. And it's distinct from situational sparring because in situational sparring, if we just say, hey, we're going to spar... You know, sweeping. You can still run from me. You can still shut me down in certain ways. If we say we're just going to spar, Delaheva guard. There's still that element of competitiveness that narrows down how much we're going to experiment, and it limits the amount of development that can occur. Does that kind of make sense as far as what fuck your jujitsu is?
0: Yeah, I, I think so. The when I first heard of, of this framework, the first thought that I had is, oh, it sounds like positional sparring or a constraints led approach. And I've got a lot of Rob Bernacki acolytes in our community, Bernacolites, I guess. I got a lot of Bernacolites in our community who who have told me that it's it's actually a little bit different from positional sparring or for even maybe from a constraints led approach but i i wasn't totally clear on exactly why and it sounds like you're saying the big thing is you're not really restricting the action but it's more about the mindset it's more about trying to funnel people into a situation where they're still being exploratory and aggressive and they're not falling back on their a game in their role because it's very very hard to develop new skills when you're just playing the same game that you've always played before is that a
1: yes and it's also modular in the sense that you know like if i'm approaching you know a white or a blue belts guard in a round of fuck you jiu-jitsu and let's say we're wearing the gi i will absolutely not just let them get to you know dela or x guard but i will give them my sleeve grips and i will see if i can figure out a way to prevent them from sweeping me at that point and then recover etc etc if i'm doing a round of that with rory and i give rory my sleeve grips well i'm just going to get face planted instantly fucking Rory. Yeah. Or anybody, or, you know, Matt or like any good black belt. If I just give them every you know condition they need to do a sweep, they're just going to sweep me. So, you know, I might let them get their initial guard established, but I won't let them grab my wrists or my sleeves or whatever. And I, I can, again, depending on how honest I'm being with myself about how much I'm trying to develop, I can, you know, if I understand the point of this, I can allow just the right amount of conditions to be met for my opponent so that i'm being challenged you know if it's too easy then i didn't give them enough grips maybe i give them a little bit more to work with if it's too difficult then i gave them too much and then i'm not developing then i'm just being a you know a grappling dummy and just getting knocked over over and over again so if you take the sort of parameters that we try to create and we put a lot of thought into the different parameters for the different types of fuck your jujitsu that we do, because we do it with passing. We do it with top control. We try to figure out ways to make games out of it. And that helps people develop that responsiveness to to chaos. That I call it an an adaptable problem solving algorithm. You're going to face situations where you've never seen this before. You don't have a prepared answer. And how much time you spent in scenarios like this and how much you understand the concepts that go with those scenarios And when I say understand it, I don't mean like, let me sit down and think about it and calculate where the end of the lever is. It's like your body will just understand it. You will know what to do without knowing what to do. Your body will just respond. It's like what did Bruce Lee say? I don't hit. It hits all by itself. The idea is that your body should just be able to react and you'll be able to figure it out. And I mean, certainly if you've got the time to slow the match down and think about it, then I'm not saying that that can't happen. But as you go up against better and better opponents, your decision making needs to be very fast or instantaneous or the the decision has to just come out of the ether because your body has been exposed to enough situations where you now have the skill of responding to something that you've not prepared for specifically.
0: Yeah, I think that this is something you'll hear a lot in the striking arts, of course, you know, the, the, the strike that knocks you out is the one you don't see coming. And I think a lot of that actually is the case in jujitsu as well. You can have two very, very skilled grapplers who have incredible skill across the board but often who wins and who loses comes down to who is able to ask a question of their opponent the opponent does not have an answer to and sometimes as soon as the first time that happens happens when someone basically asks the question you know does a movement initiates a sequence that the opponent does not have an immediate answer for that's when the dominoes start to fall down and it all comes down to finding that initial bit of leverage over over your opponent i mean i've definitely had that experience where you're sparring with someone and for quite a while it seems pretty even but then one person takes an unexpected action and then it's like like the whole house of cards comes down for the other person and there's a progressive advancement through bad positions and bad options until eventually the, you know, the the game is over effectively.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that at the high level, that probably happens a lot less than it does in the lower levels because there's less uh, information asymmetry between black belts. Every so often somebody comes along with a, a new approach that people don't have answers for but then answers are developed and there's so there's that you know that the bleeding edge of the metagame where people or the bleeding edge of technique where somebody's doing something that other people aren't prepared for and that but that lasts a limited amount of time right like it's not like anybody didn't know what marcelo garcia was going to do he just did it anyway Mm -hmm. and i think that's the other aspect of what happens is that you get the like the information asymmetry and then you get the frankly the more athletic possibility which is just I'm going to keep doing what I do. And at a certain point, you're going to need a break. And when you take a break and stop moving, I break through your defenses with a movement that, again, it's not that it's unpredictable. You know, I'm going to do it, but you're so either mentally or physically worn out by my pace that you just don't take the next step that you know you need to take, but you just don't have it in you to do it. So I would say that those are the
0: two ways that it goes. Not that that matters, but it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you're almost describing, I mean, assuming that we're still talking about kind of the chaotic phase of of the match, you're almost talking about this like a, almost like a form of pressure that you can apply on your opponent where you just over- Oh, very much so, yeah. Yeah, you just overload them. I, I was recording with Margot Ciccarelli and she was talking about how she uses similar strategies and how she actually incorporates things like aspects of dance and rhythm training into her competitive strategy. And on its surface, these are things that don't appear to have any resemblance to jiu-jitsu at all. But what she mentioned is that she likes to always have all of the parts of her body engaged in doing something to create visual stimuli for her Mm -hmm. opponent. So if all of her arms and legs are moving in different unpredictable ways, it just overwhelms their opponent, creates cognitive overload, and then their opponent cannot effectively predict what's going to come next.
1: That sounds like a really really great example of basically what she's doing is creating a
0: state where perpetual chaos, basically.
1: But yeah, it's a perpetual chaos, but, but chaos that's only affecting the other person. Yes. Yeah. Like for her, it's not chaotic. There aren't a bunch of variables. She's controlling the variables. She's the one doing the
0: dance. That's exactly it. Yeah. That that's how she described it. So she's using chaos as a weapon almost like it's not chaos to her but to her opponent it's totally fucking crazy and it just overwhelms them with the number of possibilities that could happen because their arms and legs are all moving in ways that you don't expect there's constant visual stimuli that's overwhelming you and at that point it's just it's kind of like pressure passing you're forcing your opponent to live in a world of just perpetual attack to the point where they can't do anything about it and then eventually they break down.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting. I'm a big fan of Margo's, by the way. She's super intelligent and cool about how she approaches jujitsu, like very innovative. So I'm not surprised to see that she's come up with something that that can um, exploit chaos rather than just be aware of it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I'm actually planning to get her on and to do like a a multi-part series, probably for a premium thing, to just explain exactly what she means by all of this and how she does it.
1: Well, I'm certainly not going to speak for her, but I can speak to the idea of rhythm and broken rhythm. Yeah. Because that is definitely a thing that you see in Striking, where you establish a rhythm and then you break the rhythm. And so you are introducing an element of chaos where it's unpredictable to the other person and the initial variables can result in a dramatic swing but for you it is predictable because you're the one controlling the rhythm and that does have a an analog in grappling where although it's it's fundamental to striking if you don't create broken rhythm in striking it's very hard to break through someone's defenses yeah you can break through someone's because it's you know again in striking it's not like people are like ooh a punch never seen that before. <laughs> right. Like, you know, whereas in, in, in jujitsu, it's like, what, what the fuck's a barren Like the first time it happened, right? Like I, why is this person sticking their ass in my face? Like, oh shit. They're on my back. Yeah. Like, yeah. So th- that doesn't really happen in striking. So you use broken rhythm to, to achieve the same effect. Whereas in jujitsu, you can have a novel movement that takes people entirely by surprise.
0: Yeah, it's actually funny. I I saw someone on Reddit who was asking a question about like how to go from a seventy thirty to a Zen bolo. And I mean, you know, I've I've been mostly off the mats for like two years, right? So I looked at that and I thought I can't tell if this is a troll or not. I've never heard of any of these things. So I actually had to message Margot and be like, "Can you tell me if this is real shit?" <laughs> she <laughs> said, yeah, "Yes, these are real moves." Okay, now I got another thing I got to learn. the yeah, fuck very, is a Zen bolo?
1: Very much. So. It's it's a it's a type of hook that she uses. We, we call it a wedge hook. Yeah. So in, in,
0: in Matt's instructional, uh, he covered some of the similar stuff. And I'm not going to give him the satisfaction of having watched his instructional. I mean, I'm sure it's great, but as his older brother, you understand, right? I simply no, I I, I cannot absolutely. give him the satisfaction of having learned from his absolutely. instructional. Absolutely.
1: Uh, but it, yeah, anyway, it's a it's a it's a it's a wedge hook used to take the back. And anyway, and, and 70-30 is a 5050 derivation. So, but the, the point I was making, sorry, was about broken rhythms. So you know, you can use novel techniques to get through or you can establish a rhythm let's say you know again like with with margo's using it with dance movements you can establish a rhythm with footwork in guard passing probably uh, rafa mendez is the best example of this where he just starts stepping and using footwork and people get used to his rhythm and then he changes it and all of a sudden he appears past your guard and he does this to good black belts and I i don't think i've ever seen anyone else do it like that there's certainly people who pass the guard with extreme efficiency and they'll definitely get past your guard, but they won't make you look foolish. They'll just pass your guard. Whereas Rafa Mendez literally makes people like roll over and give up a guard pass without even touching them because of his footwork and their overreactions to his changes of direction cause them to overcommit so much on fundamental guard retention movements that he just appears past the guard. And, and that kind of led me to a phrase that I like to give my students, which is, you know, you don't pass guards, you pass guard retention movements. Mm-hmm. If I can make you just do guard retention movements and commit larger and larger movements each time, eventually the movement will be so big that even somebody relatively unathletic and, and lanky like myself can still kind of slip through the gap that's been created.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. As I as I get older and I'm always looking for new ways to try to be competitive with these young athletic fucks, the, the thing that I found is a lot of the things that we take for granted as things you should or shouldn't do in jiu-jitsu that we've all been trained since day one, when you start to question those things and you start to act a bit unpredictably – as long as you do it in a semi-intelligent way, it can open up a lot of options. I mean, there's a lot of things from day one that we're always told never, ever, ever to do. And we kind of do those things to some extent without questioning because they tend to be good fundamental movements.
1: Speak for yourself. (laughs) 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 One of the things I shit on so much, you know, I get lots of students that either visit here through our visiting student program, which I guess I should plug that now that we're open again and People are visiting. If you want to visit our club and train with us, you can stay for free for a week. You can train for free for a week. All you got to do is get here. Well, first you got to let me know you're coming. You got to schedule a visit. <laughs> Don't just show up <laughs> with your bags packed at uh, at Island Top Team and just like, yo, I'm visiting. But yeah, if you if you contact us at the academy and you want to visit, you're welcome to do so. Obviously, you got to be vaccinated. Yeah, with the visiting student program, we get people come in and they're like, yeah, you know, I was always told this, and I was always told that, and I was always told this, and I'm like. Yeah, none of that is true. Mm -hmm. Like there are reasons not to do certain things and there are reasons to do certain things. But if someone is just blanket told you, just don't do this without an explanation, then frankly, they probably, they either don't know themselves or they don't have enough faith in your ability to understand it. So they
0: think you're an idiot. Or in my case, they spent the first three years of their journey at a Gracie Baja and then it took like 10 years to untrain all of those habits.
1: (laughs) Exactly. That's, you know, that's kind of what I'm saying is that at most places, there isn't a a very developed uh, level of instruction. You know, like I've had, I've had so many visitors come here and I watch them roll and then I'm like, Hey, so your game looks like this and you like to do this and this. And here's some things that you could change. And I've literally had people on the verge of tears. They're like, no one has ever done that before. No one's yeah. ever sat down, watched me roll. And the, I'm like, really? At your school, the teacher doesn't just watch you guys roll and then give you feedback? I'm like, nope. So there are lots of things that are, you know, best or at least good practice for teaching that aren't done at most places that lead to people, being told to never do this or never do that, that's not great. Anyway, sorry, this is a bit of a tangent.
0: Like paying attention to your students and trying to actually help them on an individual basis. What a revolutionary concept, but yeah, it is. I
1: know, right? It's like people who uh, refer to anything I do as being
0: like genius
1: or it's so great <laughs> or it's or that. I'm like, no, dude, I'm just doing normal shit from like real Sports or real activities where the, the instruction is good and it's based on something other than <laughs> trying to create a cult or a, uh, a you know a multi-level marketing affiliation tool or whatever the fuck it is over
0: here. <laughs> yeah, I I feel you, man. But yeah, so one of the things I'd love to understand then is just in terms of game planning. I mean, I I think I understand how you apply this to some extent in terms of the classroom, but in terms of game planning, when you've got a competitor who's going out there, they may or may not know who they're facing. They presumably have multiple matches. There are inherently a lot of chaotic variables just with the competitive process itself. How do you inform the the practice of prepping a competitor and helping them put together a strategy using these concepts is this something that comes up when you're you know helping Rory or your guys get ready for comp
1: oh for sure for sure so the, one of the things that is so frankly difficult to get through to people's heads when they first start competing is that like the first like 5 or 10 seconds of the match is so critical because of all of those variables so we want to reduce the chaos of that initial exchange like the first question is are you going for takedowns or are you pulling guard if you're like well i'm gonna feel it out that's fucking terrible (laughs) you're not gonna feel anything out because the other person's gonna touch you and go and go to what their like best thing is is going to be and you know if you're if you want to feel it out and they're and you're good at takedowns and they're good at takedowns and they want to play takedowns you might get lucky and you might get to have a takedown battle with someone but they might also just be way better than you at takedowns and you're like let's feel it out oh fuck i'm in the air you know or it's somebody who's really good at guard and they're going to immediately pull to a sweep and now your, your butt's touching the ground. You're having to fight off a, a bolo or whatever. Like the initial point of contact is where we can reduce a significant amount of chaos. We can at least take it out of the realm of maybe they'll pull guard. Maybe they'll get a takedown. Maybe I'll get a takedown. Maybe they'll jump a guillotine. Maybe they'll do a flying armor. Like there's so many things that could happen. And if you just go, like if you understand that you're, you know, you've got a strategy. Okay, if my strategy is definitely to go for a takedown, I need to both be prepared for the initial hand fight and for an initial guard pull. And how do I stop the other person from pulling guard in a preferential manner? Mm-hmm. And that's not easy. Like the, the, the guard pull variable makes everything so much more chaotic in like jujitsu competition than it might be in a, you know, a wrestling or a judo competition. Yeah. Just that one extra variable makes it so much more difficult. So that's really like the, you know, it's a kind of a no brainer, but it's like, what are you going to do? You know, like my matches at Nogi Worlds. Which, you know, we're certainly not going to have time to to get into that today. But like like I managed to, you know, by necessity and because I like super respected my opponent, I did the fastest guard pull I have ever done in my life. (laughs) And I thought I did such a good job. And by the time my butt touched the ground, this guy had already dropped to both knees. And knowing that I I wanted to engage in certain leg entanglements and being prepared to shut it down. And that's how important that those first, you know, five seconds of the match where contact was made, I sat, he dropped. If it had gone any other way, I would have had a huge advantage going into the beginning of the match because I was like a couple of the other matches that I had, I got, The thing that I wanted, and I ended the match immediately because of it. Mm -hmm. So, and not all grapplers have that, right? Like, one of the things that I've tried to explain to people is like, you know, some grapplers have to take you through a very prolonged sequence before they finish you. They have to either take you down or they have to pull guard and sweep you, and then they have to pass your guard, and then they have to get to the mount or the back, and then they can submit you. And then there are guys who can just, boom, sit right into a submission. So depending on what you're looking at, if you cultivate that and if you, or if your, your opponent has cultivated that, that's an element that has to be dealt with right away. And so like that's something that I've cultivated where I can pull directly into a movement that'll end the match. And my opponent knew it. And so the second I touched him and started to sit guard, he dropped faster than I did, (laughs) which I've never seen happen. And so that's like if you're not prepared for that, and you're just like, oh, whatever, man, you've got to be so much better than the other person in that field. Maybe not overall as a grappler, but in that initial field, or things can just go against you really quickly. So that that's an example of like you know we could kind of talk about things like that all day, but there are like in, in every circumstance, we're either trying to use chaos to our advantage, like Margo does, which you know to do that, I think you have to be. Quite talented because now you're combining dance with (laughs) jujitsu, which you're certainly never going to see me do that. I don't think the sprinkler is a movement that would be very (laughs) like useful in jujitsu competition. (laughs) That's all I can do. But you know, so you you have to be really talented to do that. Or you can, you know, if you're less talented, it's just got to be okay. I'm going to make sure that I understand what the AB variable is on the initial grip fighting exchange. And I'm either going to get it and proceed, or if I don't get it, I'm going to break distance and try again. And just, and, and so then the, the next thing is just once they realize that the next thing is having the discipline and people who only ever roll in the gym have atrocious discipline. And, and I don't mean that in like a, a negative way where they're like children and they can't they like do their homework. I just mean that like they're rolling which is fun and so you know if something's happening in a role that you kind of want to pursue or things go against you you can go down a rabbit hole and kind of figure it out but in competition it's like if I don't get the conditions I want I don't go forward and so if I have to have the same grip fight with you 20 times I do it and if you don't have the discipline for that and you're preparing for competition and the other person does have that discipline you're fucked. They'll just grind you. They'll just be like, oh, I got we went through that exchange a few times. Let's try something else. And then you try something else and then they win. Yeah. So that's the other way. Was like we want to reduce the variable by it's just like, if I don't get the initial conditions right, I don't go forward. Or if the initial conditions are chaotic and I can can tell that I'm better in the chaos than they are then okay go ahead go forward if you've definitely developed the ability to float over someone's guard and recover from sweeps and and pass that way then go right ahead so like i'm very comfortable in those exchanges and i will allow people to establish a bit of a guard i'll even bait them into it so that i can pass most people don't do that and it's only right if you've cultivated that that skill does that make sense
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, to some extent, what you're talking about is just inoculation, right? Getting in there and having had experience competing or not even competing really, but just having had experience playing in the playground where you're going to be working. If you have always been a hobbyist and then you go into competition, as, as Robert Deagle recently said on social competing is a skill in and of itself I mean you can be a total jujitsu savant in the gym but just the experience of competing is inherently different and there's variables some of which are inherently chaotic that you just will not understand and I, I say this as a hobbyist I mean I, I'm someone who's never competed but of course doing this podcast I speak with tons of people who are and they talk about a whole different level of experience that I don't have to deal with as someone who does this for fun.
1: Oh, it's, it's immense. Just, just the difference between, you know, like going to Nogi worlds there the other week, you know, the difference between myself and Rory, and I'm not an experienced competitor. I, I'm still like, you know, I didn't start competing pretty much till I had my black belt. So I'm way behind on the curve. And there are you know, gaps of time where I wasn't able to compete not just, you know, COVID, but previously with injuries and just being too busy with running a business and all that kind of stuff. So I'm still like any tournament like of note that I go to. So like, if I go to Nogi worlds, just about every match I have is almost guaranteed to be against someone that has anywhere from two or three times to maybe fifteen times the competition mm-hmm. experience that I do, but I've done it a few times now, and so you know what I'm able to bring to the table in terms of showing my game on the day is so much more than Rory has, mm-hmm. and he's just gonna have to go through the same process that I went through, which is you know you you're a black belt you're just starting to compete at this level you're not going to be nearly as effective as you are in the gym like I I, you know obviously I know Rory's game I'm his instructor I've seen him roll with really high level people in the gym and he's more than capable of hanging with them but right now in competition, he's got his work cut out for him. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and, and on top of that, he's got the handicap of being Rory, which in and of itself is going to be something that he has to work really hard to overcome.
1: Well, exactly. And, and, which yeah. he'll never <laughs> overcome because he'll always be Rory. So, yeah. like, he's, he's
0: just... <laughs> But it's funny you bring that up because on our subscription site, uh, BJJ Mental Models Premium, we're actually, we did a three part series with Dominica Oblanite. And she wanted to talk about the process of dealing with competition and specifically the crushing emotional pressure that comes with it, which is something that a lot of of people don't talk about. And so we've been talking with her about how she preps for competition and the big challenges. And I expected her when we started this conversation to be talking about like what actually happens on the mats. But what she actually brought up primarily is the crazy chaotic systems that can happen before you even step on the mats that are just an inherent part of jujitsu competition. I mean, I'm sure you've noticed, Rob, and I'm sure most of our listeners have noticed, noticed that jujitsu competitions are generally pretty poorly organized. <laughs> and Yeah. Hey, so like, honestly, I, if I haven't bored you and the
1: listeners to tears, we should do another one of these where we talk about Nogi Worlds because yeah. I can give you so many examples of that again like i don't we're kind of running short on time but just a quick one the ibjjf scale was off by seven or eight pounds holy shit yeah
0: how's that even possible
1: well i mean (laughs) i don't want to speculate did
0: did they jury rig the scale for whoever weighed in before you is that
1: no 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 it was it was universal right like it was everybody like Uh, competitors were walking up to it and like laughing at how far the scale was off jeez you know I, again i don't want to speculate because i you know conspiracy theories are the bane of our society's existence and they're making everyone's life worse and the people who spread them are fucking idiots and they're holding back you know the progress of society so i'm not going to speculate on why this was but there are some theories that frankly are not that conspiratorial when you take into account what the ibjjf is and what they do on a regular basis <laughs>
0: yeah but it was just funny when we were talking to dom like i expected her to talk about you know the pressure of getting in there and tying up with someone and what to do when the game plan isn't going your way but her biggest stories were more about how, you know, the, the meal that she had right before comp didn't agree with her. And then she went back to the hotel to take a nap, but her call time wound up being like two hours earlier than she thought it was going to be. And she yep, had to all of go that. through rush hour to get there. And by the time she actually got into the bullpen, she was so fucking frazzled by the whole thing <laughs> that like before well, she'd even started, the chaos of the situation had already taken a number on her. I mean, boss Rutan, you know who boss Rutan is.
1: Of course. Obviously. Yeah. Just me, you know, making sure. <laughs> uh, Boss Rutan back in the day uh, in his, like one of his early instructionals actually touched on this. And he was like, you know, if you're going to be a professional fighter, if you're going to travel to train, don't go fucking eat at Subway or, you know, wherever you don't know, you bring meals with you. Like you have, you you've got your like whatever plastic packs of whatever food, you know, or, you know, or you go to a grocery store and you make sure you get food that you know is going to be okay like you know one of the reasons that when we do our competition trips we we get an Airbnb or we get a, you know we make sure we've got a kitchen basically we don't, you know, it's not, we're not going to go get a hotel room and then eat out. Like after we compete, we're going to put as much garbage in our bodies as possible. It's <laughs> cathartic, but, but leading up to that, it's like, no, we're going to go grocery shopping. You're going to eat the same damn thing you ate the whole time you were getting ready for the tournament. And we're going to make sure that your body is getting the, the, the exact same feeling that it's had before. Yeah. That, that's a huge part. Like, yeah, when we're like, that, that's something that I communicate to my competitors. Like when we do our match simulation, which we were doing every Saturday leading up to the tournament it's like show up do the same warm show up early do the same warm-up that you're gonna do and just make sure that you replicate that as exactly as possible when you go and compete and like with the the match simulation that I did like the last one prior to the event, I didn't do the warm-up properly and my first match I almost lost to one of my like crazy good adult purple belts who was like 20 pounds heavier than me and a sick athlete and I was like I just, I had a bit of an adrenaline dump and I was tired and, and like, I fought my way back and I got it and I got the win. And then I got to go on in the, cause like the way we do our match simulation at the Academy is like, if you lose your first match, you're done. It's just like any of this, like you show up and then you, tough luck, you go home or you can be an opponent for someone else, but your, your day is done. So like, I, I had that. And then, you know, when I went to the, to the event and I did a proper warm up and I felt so different as a result in my first match so like just stuff like that being able to control those variables and remove that element of chaos it's like I don't know how I'm going to feel in my first match I might feel good I might feel bad no you should know how you're going to feel because you've done your
0: warm-up you've prepared properly this is something I've heard Josh Waitskin and his disciple Emily Kwok friend of the podcast talk about quite a bit which is like having routines that prime you for competitive success and actually being able to almost program yourself so that the routine becomes like a trigger that you can use to get into the zone that you need to be in, in order to compete. And I think a mistake that a lot of people often make when going into any stressful situation is understanding that the situation itself does not live in a vacuum there's all of these things leading up to it in the case of competition it would be for example you know how you prepare how you warm up what you eat before all of these things and when we talk about variables at the beginning of the process that can create a ton of chaos later on that prep and what happens before the comp is a big one and that's not something that is unique to Brazilian Jitsu, It's the same thing if you're going into like a high stakes negotiation or you have a big presentation you're doing. I mean, common mistake in, in my world is, you know, if, if you have a massive like killer life or death presentation you have to make and you don't do like a dry run beforehand and PowerPoint fucks up or something, it can totally throw you off the game before you even really get started. Well, it's funny, like apropos of that, I
1: remember mean, when I um, did the first instructional, with Stefan at Grapple Arts. It was the the BJJ formula, the one that kind of put Mm -hmm. my name out there. I was talking to Rich Yip prior to it because I'd sent Stefan a a layout, like basically a a chapter by chapter layout of what I was going to do. And then prior to filming with Stefan, I grabbed, I think it was Rory, but it might not have been, it might've been someone else. And I filmed basically the entire instructional, not in the same level of detail, but every chapter I filmed it prior to filming with Stefan and I, I talked to Richie. I was like, yeah, so, you know, I did this and I did this. And he's like, you did what? I'm like, well, I did this. He's like, (laughs) no one he's worked with has ever done that before. Like they just show up and that's just kind of the way that instructionals were usually done. It's just like, you show up and you're like, "Ah, I'm going to teach some techniques. And then I go, Yeah. so like, it's just another example. And you know, the the way that IBJJF tournaments are run and all this kind of, it's another example of our Sport is not very professional yet
0: yeah, uh, yeah there's
1: a huge amount of gains that are being made by certain athletes by just being a little bit professional and if you're you know a lot professional you, you make you know you could argue that the the success that Gordon Ryan has is because he's pretty much one of
0: the only guys out there treating it like a professional it's funny you bring that up we talked to travis stevens about this and that's exactly what he said which is he said that as far as he knows gordon ryan is the only person in the sport that he would describe of as an actual professional in that he doesn't just show up and let Jesus take the wheel when he rolls. Right. But he's got an entire game plan in terms of how he gets there. There's a whole team of people who prepare him and build him up. He's got a process and a system. Basically he treats it like a job. Whereas most people, even people who actually make their living off of jujitsu and do it relatively successfully, oh, yeah. they, they appear to treat jujitsu more like a hobby. I mean, well, it, and you see this, like I used to see this when I did was training MMA. And
1: it's like the difference between how a guy like George St. Pierre, or like any Mm -hmm. number of fighters, but he's probably the best example of that, of like a guy who is a professional and tries to take every element of the game and have uh, a professional approach to it. And then you guys are like, yeah, you know, yeah, I do some training or maybe they've got one thing that they're professional about. Maybe they are very professional about their strength and conditioning. But yep. they're not professional about their diet or their media appearances or or, or some aspects of their preparation. And like I remember training with fighters who, like, you know, I, I was supposed to spar with a guy at noon. Which, like, for fuck's sake, if you can't get somewhere by noon, what the hell? Like, <laughs> you know. But like, I, you know, I'd be like, it's twelve fifteen. I text the guy. I'm like, hey, dude, I thought we were sparring today. It's like, ah, uh, come on, man. We don't. It's not like this is a nine to five job. well no apparently for you it isn't a job at all and this is and and and, you know i mean i can give you countless examples of people like this this is why i hate training mma fighters for the most part because the vast majority of them are not even slightly professional and you know they don't show up they want everything for free and they don't do this and they don't do that and then you can tell immediately the ones that aren't going to be successful because they're just huge fucking flakes and they take the Mm -hmm. fact that it's you know not a common nine to five job and they use it as an excuse to just do whatever.
0: Yeah. Even yeah, though yeah. they
1: might work very hard in certain aspects of it and you know they they'll have some type of discipline because you know you can't can't get anywhere if you don't have that, but they miss massive elements of what's necessary to actually make it because they're just not overall
0: treating it like a profession. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Rob, as we, uh, as we over the hour here, I would ask you one last question in terms of actionable advice for the average grappler or the average instructor based on what you've seen in your journey, anything you'd specifically encourage people just on the concept of chaos management to adapt into their game or their curriculum that we haven't already discussed in this chat. I don't think anything we haven't discussed just, you know, educate yourself. If you're an instructor, educate yourself on, you know, what
1: are the things that can be very specifically systematized. And on what are the things that require a more open gamification or, or a skill development type of pathway. And like when you have that, then at least you're training appropriately. You're training for chaos and you're training to avoid chaos because that's really what we're doing. We're training to find a way to manage chaos, but we're also training to find a way to avoid or minimize chaos. And as long as you do that and you do it you know diligently professionally you're going to arrive at the right answers there's nothing we're we're talking about here is actual chaos theory it's not high level mathematics it's it's a pretty simple idea that just draws on the the framework of chaos theory to create more beneficial training Right.
0: But to be clear, we're going to call it chaos theory when we push this episode because we want to get more clicks, right? Oh, please do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. On that topic, it sounds like a lot of what we've talked about here is stuff that you actually have on BJJ concepts, like the fuck your jujitsu stuff. Let's uh, let's put the bread on the other end of the shit sandwich here. If people want to go and sign up for BJJ concepts, how do they do it?
1: BJJconcepts.net or BJJconcepts.com. Either URL will take you there. So on the site, we've got our like student membership and our instructor membership. So the student membership won't give you access to as much of the stuff that we're talking about, but it will include the fuck your jujitsu and the fundamental concepts when it comes to the teaching methods especially a lot of the gamification and, and just like the you know cognitive learning strategies and how we might use let's say the socratic method or or how we might design certain drills using these ideas that's all going to be found in the, the the pedagogy section which you access with the instructor membership and so if you're if you're interested in that get the the instructor membership and you'll learn a lot about the stuff that we talked about today
0: Got it. I mean, all, all of that sounds pretty expensive. I'm guessing that's like 300 bucks a month, right? <laughs> Man, you're, you've are you really got the, uh, the sales tactics
1: down. Uh, shit. <laughs> I've, done, I've done this shit a few times. Just for your listeners, <laughs> one time, you know, the student membership is 20 bucks a month. The instructor membership is 30 bucks a month, or you can pay for it annually, 200 bucks
0: a year, 300 bucks a year. Got it. But, but Rob, I mean, you know, times are tough, things are uncertain. Uh, I, I, I can't afford to get locked into something like this. I mean, I, I can't make a long-term commitment. Do you think there's a way that I could still just like check this thing out and, you know? Yeah,
1: absolutely. We've, we've got a, a, a code that I should probably know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, li- listeners, the Inside Baseball, this is the second time Rob has come onto this podcast with a code that he has forgotten. So
1: <laughs> There's a code called Immunity. Uh, that you can use and that will get you 15% off and a free week to try it out
0: nice nice and of course you also have a month-to-month option for people who just want to dabble their toes in and see if it's for them right I believe that you you don't have to do it annually there's also the month-to-month thing right that's yeah that's what I'm saying like so the monthly subscription is
1: 20 bucks or 30 bucks a month yeah
0: got it cool and of course if assuming anyone is still listening and hasn't tuned out after all that sales pitch stuff if you want to check out our stuff on bjj mental models premium best place to do that is premium.bjjmentalmodels.com in addition to being the single best way to support the show it also gets you access to a lot of the stuff we talked about on the show like a lot of those premium series that we did with dominica and that we're planning to do with margo as well there's a whole world of other awesome stuff on there that's a lot more structured and course-like than what we offer here on the podcast so i definitely do recommend checking it out again premium.bjjmentalmodels.com
1: oh uh, while you're on the topic of dominica uh, when you speak to her ask her what her father yells during her matches because i was sitting behind him at worlds and i understand a
0: smattering of russian and oh man <laughs> <laughs> um, Dom- dominica has a lot of stories about her father like i she she always brings up her father and the influence that Her father has had on her training, and I'm not yet sure if she's bringing this up in a positive or a negative way. But I've heard her dad is like he is hardcore, maybe more hardcore than she
1: is. (laughs) Yeah, like I said, I'm I'm, I'm quite curious because, like I said, I understood some of it, and I know those words, and they're not nice (laughs) words. So,
0: (laughs) all right, I will. I will let them know. Well, Rob, again, big thanks for coming by. We always love having you here. This was a really cool and unique chat. So I, I think it's awesome that we were able to put this out there, and you know. Of course, now we can walk around telling everyone that we have PhDs in theoretical physics, right? We're chaos theorists.
1: (laughs) Don't get me started about people who think they're (laughs) qualified to talk about science shit.
0: Well, we we have a podcast, Rob. We've got a fucking podcast here. That's what what other credential do we need to be experts in the area? (laughs) It's like we've manifested our own expertise here. But anyway, yeah, yeah, so disclaimer for the listeners we don't know what the the fuck we're talking about but i think this was a very interesting idea here definitely jives with a lot of the stuff that i have i've experienced and that i've heard other high level well actual high level folks other than myself talk about so really fantastic rob i do appreciate it
1: oh it's my pleasure really great talking to you, Steve.
0: you too buddy okay and of course for all the listeners thanks again for hanging out with us here for another week and we'll talk to you guys next time take care